may be the car fuel of the future. New Scientist reports that at the University of New South Wales, chemical engineer Maria Skillis Kazokas has developed a battery based on the metal vanadium dissolved in dilute sulfuric acid and has about half the power of the same size lead acid battery. The trick is that you can charge up the liquid with power and then store it in a large tank for later. You could send the tanks to filling stations around the country, just like petrol. When your charge runs out, you drain your car tank into the station's reservoir and pump in fully charged battery liquids. The station can recharge the liquid after you've left. This technology is being used on King Island off the coast of Tasmania to buffer the power from a wind farm. A tank of 70,000 litres will deliver 400 kilowatts for two hours before it needs recharging. This has allowed the wind-derived electricity going into the grid on the island to go from 12% up to 40% without any extra wind. They simply store the electricity from the windy times and use the battery when it's less windy. The same principle could easily be extended to solar power. For more power, you add more battery cells. For longer power supply, you build more storage tanks. Manufacturing plants in Japan are using the batteries as a very big uninterruptible power supply. Power companies in the USA are using them to smooth out distribution of power without having to build new cabling. A 12 megawatt hour battery is being built for an Irish wind farm so they can provide guaranteed continuous power without any need to burn stuff. Researchers at the University of New South Wales plan to double the capacity of the battery this year by replacing the vanadium sulphate with vanadium bromide, which can store more vanadium and therefore more power. Termites can mess you up. If an ant bites you, it hurts because of the formic acid ants secrete. Termites secrete naphthalene, gas, to protect their nest. You might know naphthalene better as the poison used in mothballs. Naphthalene gas poisoning is hard to diagnose because the poison is stored in your fat cells. This means that unlike most environmental illnesses, you don't get better just by being away from the poison source. Naphthalene can be released into your bloodstream when your body burns fat. The neurotoxic symptoms can start with headaches, lethargy, stomach upsets and dizziness, but in acute cases they can go into liver damage, coughing up blood and lead to death. The answer is commercial naphthalene detectors alongside smoke detectors. This not only protects the building against being eaten from the inside, but may warn you when it's time to have your home exterminated and rebuilt. Honeybees can save soldiers' lives. Researchers found that honeybees are good at locating nectar in flowers by using the colour, shape and size of the flowers. They also have a mental map using landmarks to direct them to a good eating place. Further, the honeybees can tell each other how to find the best places to eat in a dance language. The US military have weaponised the bees. 
the bees are trained to associate landmines with nectar and to share the information with the hive. In the field, soldiers can release the bees and they'll go and cluster around the landmines. The soldiers can spot the bees by shining infrared light over the field. The landmines can then be safely the landmines can then be safely detonated or avoided. Nobel Prizes add life. The names of Nobel nominees from 60 years ago has been released recently. By comparing how long the nominees lived with how long the prize winners lived, they found that winning the Nobel Prize adds about two years extra life. Even when the prize money was less, the winners gained the extra two years. Psychologists suggest it may be that the status of winning a Nobel Prize somehow adds the extra lifespan. But then we all know that psychologists are obsessed with status. Dark matter has not been directly seen with the Hubble telescope, thus proving that it's there. The Hubble telescope was used to look at many objects in the night sky to see if any of them were seen in two places at once. If you can see double images, it means that there's a large mass bending the light in an Einsteinian gravitational lens. The Hubble showed that there are many doubled images in the sky. When they used a computer model to plot the double images to find out where the large masses would be, they found a large complex structure. The matter in the structure doesn't reflect or emit any light itself. It just bends light with its mass. So they call it dark matter. What we can't see is bending the light from what we can see, giving us a clue to both its own existence and to the shape and the way the dark matter is spread around the galaxy. Thank you, Ian. Now, are you on your way to work and wishing you were back in bed? Or maybe you're just feeling like a little bit of a nana nap? Maybe Darren Osborne's report on caffeine and cola drinks will give you that pick-up you need. I'm joined by Dr Russell Keast, who's from Deakin University in Melbourne, and along with Dr Lynn Riddell, um, he's just published a paper in the journal Appetite, which is about cola uh, drinks or soft drinks in general and the use of caffeine. Thanks for joining me, Russell. Thanks, Darren. Um, can you tell me first of all about your study and what were the findings from it? Sure. Um, I suppose um, the story of caffeine and sweetened beverages is, is actually quite interesting. The first point I want to make is that caffeine is an addictive chemical. Um, secondly, um, caffeine at, at a high enough concentration also has flavour activity in it in that case it's bitter. Now it's claimed by soft drink manufacturers that caffeine is a flavour additive in soft drinks so it's, it's added for its flavour activity so by definition caffeine must obviously have flavour activity in the sweet beverage. In, in the study we've just published um, it shows that caffeine has no flavour activity in soft drinks yet the dose is high enough to be addictive. Why, why is it that caffeine in soft drinks is a problem particularly for children? Caffeine has a number of modes of action in the body, both um, in the physiology and psychology aspects, but it results in increased vigilance and tension, enhanced mood and arousal, and enhanced motor activity. So these are all positive uh, attributes of consuming caffeine. And when these are associated with sweet beverage consumption, um, you're liking the beverage over and above what you'd normally just associate with sweetness and flavour. If we had a 500ml caffeinated beverage, it contains enough dose 
to give a caffeine high. And uh, a normal can will have more than enough caffeine to create this caffeine-dependent cycle that you can get into. And the children associate the sweet beverage that they're drinking not just with the sweetness and the flavour, but with the post-ingestive effects of caffeine. So is there anything about caffeine apart from the addictive component um, that I suppose isn't good for, for children or for adults? Does it have any other negative effects? Well, not, not at the concentrations that it, it's in, um, in the sodas or in coffee or anything like that. We can, we can obviously, if the concentration is much higher, then yes, it can have, start to have major um, physiological effects and, and those concentrations are well higher than what, um, what is in soft drinks or, or coffee. You know, if we had eight cups of coffee, um, not only would you be bouncing off the roof, but you may be experiencing dizziness. One of, one of the problems with, that we're talking about in this study in terms of caffeine is the association of caffeine with, um, with sugar in a beverage so that if you're going back to self-dose with caffeine, you are also um, bringing into your body a large amount of sugar and this is creating or this is certainly a part of the growing epidemic of childhood obesity. And, and along that line, there is very strong links between childhood obesity and soda consumption. Um, for example, in a 20-year period, and this is sort of latest data we had, but soft drink consumption doubled between the late 70s and late 90s. And during that time, childhood obesity roughly doubled. And, and again, the cause and effect is great between the number of studies showing this. So if if, uh, if caffeine and, and its links with soft drinks is a problem, particularly for um, you know, the obesity epidemic in Australia, why is it that soft drink companies continue to use caffeine, do you think? Historically, um, there's a reason for having caffeine in cola beverages. Back in the 1800s when a, sort of like a general health elixir was made out of the cola uh, berry, and this was the start of the cola beverages, it had natural levels of caffeine in it. When it changed to become more of a formulated beverage, caffeine, which was a component of the original uh, beverage, remained in there. Maybe knowing that and everybody knows the the or most people know the effects of caffeine that it, it does raise a question mark as to why it should stay in there now, now some cola brands have actually and some soft drink brands have have gone caffeine free or produced caffeine free lines, but they never seem to have been successful, and some people claim yeah. that they taste different how How do you account for that well this is this is one of the difficult things with doing studies like this if you have side by side, the same brand um, soda beverage, one which is caffeinated and one which is non-caffeinated, the formulations aren't certainly don't just vary with the difference in caffeine levels. There'll be other, other variations in the formulation that will be causing flavour differences. So unless you have a non-caffeinated beverage and yourself add only caffeine to it, you don't know um, that there's not other uh, ingredient differences between the beverages. 
And what what are the outcomes that you hope to see out of this study? Well, we we know one that childhood obesity is is a growing problem, um, and we know soft drinks are associated with them. I think there needs to be an increased debate on how soft drinks are marketed to children. Certainly, the these sales in schools should be stopped. But certainly when we're talking about children, there has to be some form of regulation or the soft drink companies can't market these beverages um, to children. Well, Dr. Russell Keese, thanks very much for joining us. Hey, thanks, Darren. Thank you, Darren. And coming up on Diffusion, we'll be looking at the end of the world with the doomsday clock. up a fire escape I am somewhere in the city I am climbing up a fire escape I have got to save my baby from a mess this world has made I arrive through a window I leave through a hole in the wall I arrive through a window, I leave through a hole in a wall. I scramble down the stairwell with my baby, cradle and all. Helicopter, helicopter, let your long rope down. Let us sway into the sunset, I have done all I can do in this town. And you've just been listening to Helicopter by Matt Ward on Diffusion. The end of the world is nigh. And according to a large group of scientists from across the globe who run a thing called the Doomsday Clock, the end of the world is just five minutes away. That's two minutes closer than it was last week. Confused? Chris Stewart explains. In 1947, a group called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists decided that our species needed to be warned of the real threat of nuclear catastrophe, that the events of Hiroshima and Nagasaki showed humans were capable of designing weapons of mass destruction and actually using them on each other. As a symbol of their concern, they chose a device that clearly demonstrates the notion of time running out the doomsday clock, on which the metaphorical midnight indicates the end of civilization, and the hands are set at just a few minutes prior to catastrophe. An international board of leading scientists periodically adjusts the hands forward or back according to the machinations of global politics. The doomsday clock was originally set at seven minutes to midnight, and they have been moved just 17 times since. In 1984, the nuclear standoff between America and Russia adjusted the clock to three minutes to midnight. 
1952, the first Russian and US hydrogen bomb tests brought us to 11.58. That's the closest it's ever been. And in 1991, with the end of the Cold War and the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, the clock was wound back to an optimistic 17 minutes to midnight. But last week, in a press conference held simultaneously in London and Washington, the board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists set the clock hands at five minutes to midnight, the closest to doomsday since the Cold War era. Here's the executive director of the Bulletin, Kenneth Benedict. We stand at the brink of a second nuclear age. Not since the first atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki has the world faced such perilous choices. North Korea's recent test of a nuclear weapon, Iran's nuclear ambitions, a renewed emphasis on the military utility of nuclear weapons, the failure to adequately secure nuclear materials, and the continued presence of some 26,000 nuclear weapons in the United States and Russia are symptomatic of a failure to solve the problems posed by the most destructive technology on Earth. The dangers posed by climate change are nearly as dire as those posed by nuclear weapons. The effects may be less dramatic in the short term than the destruction that could be wrought by nuclear explosions, but over the next three to four decades, climate change could cause irremediable harm to the habitats upon which human societies depend for survival. A series of leading scientists then spoke of their real fears for the future of civilization. Professor Stephen Hawking, Cambridge Professor of Mathematics, Sir Martin Rees, President of the Royal Society, physicist Lawrence Krauss of Case Western Reserve University, and Ambassador Thomas Pickering of the International Crisis Group. Here's Hawking and Rees warning that the end of the Cold War did not remove the nuclear threat. Since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, no nuclear weapons have been used in war, though the world has been uncomfortably close to disaster on more than one occasion. But for good luck, we would all be dead. The threat of global nuclear catastrophe could be merely in temporary abeyance. In the last century, the Soviet Union rose and fell. There were two world wars. In the next hundred years, geopolitical realignments could be just as drastic. They could lead to a nuclear standoff between new superpowers that might be handled less well or less luckily than the Cuba crisis was. But it isn't just a new nuclear age that has prompted the resetting of the doomsday clock. There are other just as important threats. Sir Martin Rees again. Humankind's collective impacts on climate and oceans are unprecedented. We're transforming, even ravaging the entire biosphere through global warming and loss of biodiversity. We don't fully understand the consequences of our many faceted assaults on the interwoven fabric of atmosphere, water, land and life. These environment-driven threats, threats without enemies, should loom as large in the political perspective as did the East-West political divide during the Cold War era. Scary stuff. Sufficiently scary to drive scientists into the political arena, says Stephen Hawking. As we stand at the brink of a second nuclear age, in a period of unprecedented climate change, scientists have a special responsibility, once again, 
to inform the public and to advise leaders about the perils that humanity faces. So what are we supposed to all do about these potentially catastrophic problems? The bulletin's statement runs to many pages, but here's a summary of their recommendations. Kenneth Benedict. We need to reduce the launch readiness of U.S. and Russian nuclear forces and completely remove nuclear weapons from the day-to-day -day operations of their militaries. We need to reduce the number of nuclear weapons by dismantling, storing, and destroying more than 20,000 warheads over the next 10 years, as well as greatly increasing efforts to locate, store, and secure nuclear materials in Russia and elsewhere. We must stop production of nuclear weapons material, including highly enriched uranium and plutonium, whether in military or civilian facilities. We have to reduce carbon emissions and develop energy sources that will not add to global warming. And we need to engage in serious and candid discussion about the potential expansion of nuclear power worldwide. And so, wrapping up the bulletin's announcement, he is hawking again with a dire warning for humanity. We foresee great peril if governments and societies do not take action now to render nuclear weapons obsolete and to prevent further climate change. Or, in the symbolism of the doomsday clock, It is now five to midnight. Chris Stewart there, watching the doomsday clock slowly ticking over towards the end of the world. And you're, of course, tuned into Diffusion. Now, Mark West's been looking at his favourite top ten stories of 2006, reflecting on the year that was. Today, we're going to start looking at stories ten through to six, and then make sure that you're here next week for stories five through to one. So, Mark, what was number ten? Number ten, Jackie, is a brave new world of transhumanism. Well, it's almost upon us anyway. 2006 saw Harvard nanotechnologist Charles Lieber and colleagues demonstrate for the first time that transistors can control the function of individual living cells. Maybe we'll be able to put computers in our brains pretty soon. This work could have a revolutionary impact on science and technology, Lieber said. It provides a powerful new approach for neuroscience to study and manipulate signal propagation in neuronal networks at a level unmatched by other techniques. At number nine, we have the weird science of 2006. 9A is whales speak in different dialects. Scientists have eavesdropped on whale conversations and found that Pacific Northwest blue whales have different accents and sound different to Western Pacific Ocean or Chilean blue whales. We don't know why. And at 9B, we've got the penis transplant removed. A 44-year-old man who lost his penis in an unfortunate accident had it reattached, but not long after, Chinese doctors had to remove it again due to problems that you might not encounter in other microsurgery cases. The doctors stated that this was because of the wife's psychological rejection, as well as the swollen shape of the transplanted penis. So much for better or for worse. At number eight, we've got the Fields Medal. Mathematicians are known to shun the limelight, but surely not award ceremonies and even one million US dollars? When the International Mathematical Union, meeting at the 2006 International Congress of Mathematicians in Madrid, announced the recipients of the 2006 Fields Medals, often called the Nobel Prize of Mathematics, one of the recipients, Grigory Perelman, failed to show up and declined the award. In 2002-2003, Perelman worked out a proof of one of mathematics's longest problems, the century-old Poincare conjecture. This result is not only a major achievement, but profoundly important 
with possible use in discovering the shape of the universe. It carries a bounty of $1 million from the Clay Mathematics Institute. It is expected that Perelman will win some or all of that money, but it seems quite unlikely that he will accept it. If you're listening to this, Grigori, we'll have it. At number seven, we have rats born to mice. If you asked a rat to come to Papa, or indeed, who's your daddy, and assuming the rat could talk, then you could be surprised by the answer, thanks to 2006. In one of the weirdest scientific breakthroughs of the year, scientists have produced offspring from sperm cells grown in a different species, with rats giving birth to mice. Scientists have been able to develop one animal's sperm in another for about a decade, including human sperm in rats. However, now we know that that sperm is fertile. So next time you flippantly ask who's your daddy, or even curse that someone is a son of a bitch, listen carefully to their response. You might be surprised. At number six, we've got Neanderthals. The disappearance of Neanderthals and why we Homo sapiens won the human race, when about 50,000 years ago we were neck and neck, is a mystery, as we have never known exactly what Neanderthals were like. How were they like us? How did they differ? Were they intelligent, or were they simply cartoon cavemen? If the answers to these questions have a genetic answer, then 2006 saw us take some great steps to discovering them. Svante Pabo of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, and his team have managed to, for the first time to obtain nuclear DNA sequences from a 45,000-year-old male Neanderthal from northwestern Croatia. Their results also suggest that Neanderthals split from modern humans about 500,000 years ago, suggesting they didn't interbreed with our ancestors. Perhaps using some of the techniques in our number seven story, perhaps one day we will be able to recreate the Neanderthal genome and give birth to one. Thank you, Mark, for stories 10 through to 6, and you'd better be listening next week so that you can hear what comes in at Mark West's number one. Thank you for joining us on another week in Diffusion. Contributing to this week's show was Ian Wolfe, Darren Osborne, Mark West and Chris Stewart. Chris Stewart was also producing up here in the studios over at 2SER Sydney and we're sent across Australia via the Community Broadcasting Network. You can catch us on podcast or visit our website at www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Jackie Pepper and as always we'll see you again soon for another week on Diffusion. <laughs>